Hello! Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Lunarverse. I'm so glad you're here with us. I'm Dr. Charles Liu, your host, but please, if you possibly feel good about it, call me Chuck. I am happy to be here today, as always, with our wonderful co-host, Alan Liu. Hey, Alan, how's it going? Hi, it's going pretty well. Okay, seen any good web comics lately? Oof, I mean, there's always the classics. You got your XKCDs going oh, on. Yeah. You got your oh, Saturday yeah. morning breakfast cereal. Oh, okay. Hashtag not an ad. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. Glad that they're holding up their end of the quality spectrum. And our special guest today, I am so happy to introduce to you all Dr. Isabel Coleman. Hello, Isabel. Good to see you. Hi, good to see you too. Hey, thanks so much for being here with us. You are at the American yeah. Museum of Natural History. Uh, what is your position there, basically? Um, I'm a postdoctoral fellow, which okay. is basically like um, an early career. Terrific. So after your, after your doctorate, your PhD, hence Dr. Coleman, yeah. you are now at the next level and doing work, yes. as I understand it, on, on things that have to do with stars and how they spin, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so do you want me to give a brief summary of my work? Sure. Oh, no, it's just really quick. Um, like I study stars, but I um, and I'm looking for stellar rotation, but I do it from a kind of data science perspective oh, okay. um, in that I'm looking at large volumes of data from the TESS telescope. TESS, yes, that transit <laughs> exoplanet explorer thing. Yes, definitely. And tell you, us can't, you can't look at planets without looking at stars first. Oh, that's, that's true. That's what we always say. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great point. Okay, so we'll get to that uh, in just a few moments for sure. But right now, yes, it is our time to share and discuss today's joyfully cool cosmic thing. And as it that's turns out, <laughs> I got it right this time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, it turns out that the cool thing that I saw recently is that there is apparently a comet in the sky which it's, you know, happens all the time. So that's cool as it is. But what's neat about it is this comet is green. In other words, if we had sensitive enough eyes to take a look at this comet and really capture its colors from us, it's green colored. Now, normally it's not green color. So this is kind of cool. And when I saw this, it immediately reminded me of the old song that we used to sing in elementary school. Uh, anybody know what I'm talking about, about comets and green stuff? No? Oh, man. I'm from another country. So. <laughs> I'm from another you generation. Know. So. I know, I know. Okay, it goes like this. Comet, it makes your mouth turn green. Comet, it smells like gasoline. No? What? Uh, no, it's no. a comet cleanser? <laughs> yes, comet cleanser. Um, oh, and, man. And the the you guys recognize the tune that I just hummed? Yeah. That's from the Bridge of the River Kwai. Right. And, and that's a movie from a long, long time ago. Yes. Uh, and so it goes on there. that So we children just, uh, you know, of that era, turn the comet, makes your mouth turn green. Comet smells like gasoline. Comet, it makes you vomit. So get some comet and vomit today. You know, things like that. Anyway, also not in that. <laughs> but hardly cosmic. But it, this is a green comet, which is really cool. And, and if we're if we're lucky, we'll, we'll see what it looks like. Now, Isabel. What makes comets green? I mean, what makes comets colors in general? I, I, as many of you know, I'm a galaxies guy. So I know what makes galaxies look green. But what makes a comet look green? Well, what makes anything look any color is basically the wavelength at which it's emitting light. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in this case, uh, it's emitting light at particular wavelengths, which, you know, reach our telescopes, at, again, at particular wavelengths, uh, based on a carbon-carbon reaction. Oh, okay. So, yeah. 
So, so, um, so it's, it's just the you, composition, basically. Okay. So you have lots of carbon in this comet compared to other comets, and then somehow yeah. they interact with one another in a way that's unusual compared to other comets. And therefore, when light bounces off of them, it comes off as a greenish hue. Yeah. When, uh, when you know, it's a refraction process. It, it's the same thing that happens in our atmosphere, you oh. know, but kind of in reverse. on like, a different scale. Yeah. So how sky is blue because of the oxygen and the really yeah, scattering and stuff. Exactly. It's oh, a similar process cool. to that. That's really neat. Okay. I'm glad to hear that. Okay. So that that's just fun. Anyway, I just thought it was really a yeah. cosmically cool thing to do. And and I want to talk colors with you a little bit later because I understand, you know, that when it comes to doing stars and, and just photography and measurement of things like that in general, color is such an important way in understanding what we're doing and how we're doing it. Uh, yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, well, right now would be a good time for a question from an audience member. Alan, do we have a question from somebody that would be good for Isabel to answer? Yeah, we've got a couple questions. Um, we'll start with a question from a student. This is a student named Thomas. And this question is, what would happen if our sun collided with another star? So that would really Ooh. affect its rotation, at least. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the well, when we're talking about rotation, the first thing I always think of is the angular momentum transfer, right? Okay. So, like, I'm sure a lot of people from like watching The Martian, right? You'll be familiar with the slingshot effect, right? Where they mm. use the transfer of angular momentum between two bodies to make one body go faster. So the same kind of thing would happen if, I mean, it does happen in binary star systems, right? Okay. Stars do collide. Wow. Our sun isn't a binary, but say you you had a binary where um, one of them was evolving at a faster rate okay. than the other, so it's getting bigger faster, um, and they're spinning around each other. There's some sort of angular momentum transfer going on, and eventually they combine. Wow. So they wow. would all yeah. come together, be like two stars would become one. But during that process, yeah. there's a lot of spinning and weird stuff going on. Yeah. And to be honest, this is one of the like least understood things in astronomy. There's something called the common envelope phase, oh. which is where um, you have the two stellar cores inside the same convective envelope. Oh, neat. So oh, so like the centers of the star, they're still separate, even though the outer yeah. layers of the star are, are merged already. Wow. Right. Yeah. It's really cool. And like, I've studied a little bit, but like one kind of, um, obviously uh, it's really hard to observe and we're not yeah. quite, like, it's hard to know. you can't see through a star. Exactly. It's hard to know if you're looking at stars in their common envelope phase. Okay. But we have a lot of, there's a lot of people doing really good work on modeling it. Terrific. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that was a much more complicated answer to a simple question <laughs> than I thought. Thank you, Thomas. That's great. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what happens when stars spin, Isabel. We know that our sun, for example, spins around. It spins around on average about once a month, right? Mm -hmm. And because it's kind of a ball of hot plasma, some parts of it spin faster than others. But yes, I mean, aside from seeing sunspots once in a while, we don't really detect or sense a lot of influence of that on our world. But you're looking at things that are more extreme or, or things that, that might well, affect things a little bit better, more significantly? Not quite. But I, I do want to say it's really interesting that you mentioned star spots because that's actually what I'm looking for. Oh. Yeah. A lot of uh, younger stars and cooler stars are really good targets for looking for spots. 
um, because okay. especially like M dwarfs, which is a really sort of color, really red and small stars, mm-hmm. they have a lot of magnetic activity. But all all stars, I mean, we know the sun has magnetic activity, obviously, because we can see spots on its surface. Yeah, plenty of stars will have these like regions of intense magnetic activity, which leads to a region of lower temperature. Mm-hmm. Or like you can, but you can think of that as well as lower emission. The color is actually darker, and that's how we detect them. Because if a star is rotating, you know how people look for exoplanets by looking for the dip when the planet goes in front of the star. It's mm-hmm. pretty much the exact same method, but it looks kind of different because you've got like a spot going in and out of you on the surface. Oh, cool! Oh. So can you can you actually sense it just by looking at a star and see how it bright? dim, bright, dim, the pattern that it changes that way? Yeah, so you have to observe the star over time, which is what telescopes Mm -hmm. like TESS do. Because they're looking for those exoplanets. Exactly. This is like something we always say is you can't like, you can't study planets without studying stars first. And there's like a huge community around doing stellar astrophysics with TESS. Wow. Wow. And so, yeah, we're like, we're looking for these changes in brightness, same as you do for exoplanets, but like a different pattern. Mm -hmm. And Okay. It's really all about like finding that distinct pattern and being able to say, ah, that's rotating. Ah, when, right, when you we can see it's what moving. It's really cool. When when you talk about patterns in stars, I think about like the patterns on of star of our sun, for example, that occur because there's nuclear fusion in the center. It's like back when I was a student, right? The the Gong project was started. Gong, mm. uh, you know, it's seismology on the sun because watching the sun it's like if the sun is being struck by a like a gong right it's being yeah. struck wow. and so it rings and you can actually de- depending on the kind of telescope you use you can actually see the vibrational waves coming out of it uh, so that's like wow. that's yeah we call that stellar helioseismology right now now you do that too the the stellar seismology the same kind of thing looking at patterns of bright and dark yeah so where i actually started was in an astro seismology research group at the university of sydney oh so astro seismology is actually a pretty recent field like the last sort of 30 40 years and it's doing the same things that you've described for the sun but observing that in all sorts of stars wow wow can it actually be done i mean this yeah Uh, alan go ahead yeah i was gonna say how how like Star, the stars are just so much farther away than our sun. Like, how would you even know that they're ringing? So you need a lot of data. Um, <laughs> yeah, so sounds like it. Kepler, the Kepler telescope, which is the predecessor to TESS, really opened this up. But also the Coro satellite, which was a oh, um, oh, ESA yeah. mission. They basically just... I, I like that. Well, I'm most familiar with Kepler. So what Kepler did was it just looked at one patch of the sky for four years. Mm. And that's a lot of data, right? Yeah. So you're looking for repeating patterns. And when you can, like, um, we use a lot of, like, pattern finding algorithms, like Fourier transforms. And it basically, it, the more data you have, the more likely you are to find these oscillations. Okay. Red giant stars are actually one of the most useful types for this. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. But a red giant is basically the sun, but bigger. So if you think of the sun as like an oscillating three-dimensional body, Mm -hmm. it's like with a musical instrument. When you make that bigger, the frequencies get lower. Mm. Oh. (laughs) So, yeah, you can actually observe those depending on like the time cadence that you use to observe them. It's actually easier Mm -hmm. to observe lower frequency oscillations. So there's been a huge amount of red giant science done that way. Oh, I see. So so for example, what you're saying is that whereas a violin is very small, if you blew the violin up in size to like a cello or a double bass, 
you can actually see the vibrations more effectively uh, with exactly, a telescope yeah. set. That's just amazing. That that's super cool. Very musical, actually. I, I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> as you all know, the music of the spheres is something that you know Kepler thought about a long time ago, hundreds of years ago. And there's this music stuff, but a lot of us, yeah. you know, astronomers are very musically uh, inclined. So uh, <laughs> I, I bet you are too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've actually been a, a singing in choirs my whole life, pretty Ooh. much. Oh, cool. So, oh, tell yeah. us about it. What kind? <laughs> what kinds of choirs? Like big choirs, little um, choirs. I've done it all. I've um, like. Mostly, I would say I've sung in chamber choirs, but mm-hmm. I've also had um, experience doing like symphonic chorus, Ooh. a couple of staged operas. So not like being an actual opera chorus, uh-huh. but you know. Oh no, that's same great. Kind of feel. Oh. oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> we we are so glad that you have that and and bring that music to the science. I, I'm sure it just makes it nice, right? Because you've been doing yeah. you've been doing music even longer than you've been doing science, right? I mean, you probably Absolutely. didn't start science until you were like an adult or something. Yeah. I mean, I was definitely always interested in doing science as like, I just like liked learning about it at school. Oh, and okay. like in high school, I was in an astronomy club. Um, oh. so okay. So, so of, you were yeah. as, as <laughs> much an astronomer as a child, as a young person, as you were a musician. It's like, this is all tied yeah. in together. You, your identity <laughs> is like all these things together, right? That's cool. That's actually really funny because it, it was like what I was at high school. I was the choir captain and I was the president of the astronomy club. <laughs> so <laughs> those were my things. <laughs> that's that's awesome. awesome. No, that's great that we have that, that kind of background stuff. Do, do you do other stuff that's highly artistic as well? I imagine, yeah, we, we have a lot of audience members <laughs> who like are like, oh, I have to be either an artist or either a musician or either a scientist. Yeah. And that's not there it at go. all, right? <laughs> yeah, I've actually, I've been learning um, darkroom photography recently. Oh, so like, that's really cool. Processing my own film and developing my own prints. Really? So, so chemicals, actual yeah. stuff that's like built. Wow, wow. Uh, yeah, like um, with you know, you put your you like you actually get your roll of film into a tank and pour chemicals into it. Amazing. And wow. then you have like trays full of chemicals for prints. It's pretty fun. You, that you do like, really cool. That sounds cool. Uh, is is it color photography or black and white photography or black and white? Yeah, which is not like something I ever did before, like two months ago. I had like no interest in black and white photography, but I'm like, I've just been getting so into it. So Isabel, do you have any of your cool film photography, chemical based stuff that you've done that maybe you can show us? Yeah, um, uh, here's one I prepared earlier. Okay. Oh my this gosh. Is, this is the Cloisters. Um, wow. Now, uh, so I some, live in uptown Manhattan. Uh-huh. So some of some of our uh, audience members don't have the video; they just have the audio. So you can describe it to them, kind of like you know, uh, voice style. It, it's like a door, okay, yeah. but the door is like illuminated on either side, and then there's something kind of vaguely wheel-like on the on the right side. Wait, <laughs> tell us about this. This is so cool. It is. There's a couple um, arches here, but the arches of light you can see is the light that's coming through the arches of the cloister. Wow. And that's just some stone walls of the building. That's a door. So the dark part okay. is ironically the door. Yeah. That's super <laughs> neat. And and it's, it's so artistic. play of light and dark there. Right, yeah. right. You see the shadows and so forth. And, and if I were really conspiratorial, I would imagine that those arches of light are actually weird, ghostly 
creatures that are walking <laughs> around in the light as the dark and they're sliding back and forth. That's just so neat. You, you, you have that sense of like you want to play with light and dark and, and how these things slide back and forth. Is that the, the, the gist yeah, of that work? For sure. And like one, I mean, so this was for an assignment for my class actually, where we had to look for um, beautiful light. Oh, <laughs> so, so like to some extent you're choosing it with the camera, you know, but then when you get to the dark room and you get to printing it, you also get to um, make decisions that will change how the final product looks like um, we were talking a bit about filters earlier with James Webb. Yeah. Um, Yeah. With photography, you can, you know, when you're printing photos, you can use uh, different filters to change the contrast. So this is like, this is a three and a half for any nerds out there. um, (laughs) Photography nerds. Uh, It's a three and a half filter. So that kind of increases the contrast. I see. Wow. Now, now what this is triggering in my mind is to think that if you can do that with the photographs you're taking of say the cloisters or other places that are terrestrial and thus you're putting in filters and changing contrasts and things like that you could do that for astronomical data too right so so you could imagine someone taking pictures from a telescope it coming down and then processing it in such a way to add or subtract things that you otherwise wouldn't see am am i on track here is that the right thing that like for example do you do that for for the data that you're doing for tests and so forth um i have i have worked with something called image subtraction um which is kind of like a contrast increasing exercise um which uh, like i spoke about how i'm really interested in variable stars Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. which it's a broad term that just means anything that's brightness changes over time. But <laughs> yeah. One way you can really emphasize that when processing the images is say you have like all your images at different timestamps and you take an average mm-hmm. of those ah. and then you subtract the average from every timestamp. So what oh. you're doing is you're getting rid of whatever stays the same ah. and leaving only the stuff that changes behind. So you can think of that like really increasing the contrast on it. Absolutely. That's really cool. Wow. Yeah, and and uh, amongst galaxy folks, a number of years ago, uh, there was a astronomer named David Malan, an Australian, who used photographic plates, pictures of stuff, to reveal mm. extreme details that otherwise would be washed out by light. He used this um, the technique called unsharp masking, which was really cool. And and I think you can That's do cool, it digitally, yeah. but he did it with with film, and wow. that was a really neat thing. You know, things that nowadays we try to do with our computers but back then if you actually like take a camera and take a light box and you know work things back and forth and you get this so this is so really what you're doing uh in your dark room is enhancing your skills or your eye for the science that you're doing on your computer right yeah i mean in a way it's all kind of related like i'm also you know i'm the same age as the internet so i kind of grew (laughs) up in the generation that was playing with photoshop but even before that there was like paint and apple paint i used to play on like one of the family like my grandmother's computer i would go in and like change the little pixels and to like make an image look different you know it's all like it's just like i you know i'm from the generation of images so all this work is connected in a way fantastic 
Yeah, let's see if we have another question. Alan, is there another question for Isabel that we have from the audience? We do have a second question. This comes from our Patreon our Patreon patron, Cameron. Hey, Cameron. Um, this... Thanks for being a Patreon patron. <laughs> Yay. Hey, Cameron. Yeah, we love awesome. our patrons. Woo. We do love oh, our patrons on Patreon. Sorry. For <laughs> please continue. Please yeah, continue. This, this goes a little bit to exoplanets and the kind of stuff that Tess is doing. Um, um, so this is saying, so Cameron's question is this. Uh, fire is incredibly rare in the universe. You need to have an atmosphere rich in oxygen for rapid oxidation to occur. So uh, would the lack of ability to produce fire prevent intelligent life from forming? That's interesting because fire is fire and intelligence is one of our foundational myths, right? You know, Prometheus yeah. gave fire to humans. And that's how and we from became that, civilized. They developed right. culture. Yeah. yeah. But I'm not sure it's so, so like clear cut scientifically speaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, my other, the other thing I was thinking is that, like, there is life in the oceans. Where there is no fire. Where there is no fire. Except in, so... like, parts of Lake Erie back 40 or 50 years ago. Because well, that's on the pollution. surface. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, like, oil spills. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's a great point, Isabel. So, so actually, for them, fire is not necessary. Is that what your point is? I don't really know enough about like how ocean life evolved because I made a point of not taking biology. Well, because I'm thinking like like some intelligent uh, some ocean life that we think of as very smart, like whales and dolphins, is descend are descended from land life forms. But then yeah. others like octopus, they're not descended from land life forms, and they also seem pretty smart in terms of their ability to solve puzzles and do things like that. Yeah, I guess it depends how you define intelligence. Yeah. And the other thing that I was thinking about this um, is that a lot of the diversity of life that we have is possible because of oxygen, because it gives us so much chemical energy to work with. So like there are plenty of organisms that don't need oxygen, but they're usually like very simple organisms or stuff like plants. Um, Yeah. Even things like mushrooms need oxygen. So like maybe it's possible that something like a plant intelligence could evolve on a planet where it wasn't powered by oxygen, where it was just powered by photosynthesis or something. But then maybe oxygen makes it easier for there to be more kinds of species and thus be more chance that one of them will become an intelligent civilization. I mean, um, the question asker pinpointed it, right? That fire has been so essential to the development of so much life above water. Yeah. That it would be it would be hard to get that. I mean, there's no there's no evidence that there's ever been fire on Mars, right? Yeah. Great I guess point. there's been lava on Mars. So. Yeah. It's a little different, but yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but you know, sometimes lava sets things on fire. <laughs> That's how my brain was working, but right. I don't think it could have happened in the Martian atmosphere, right? I think you're yeah. right. Yeah, and then you think of places like Titan, right, where they have, you know, the lakes are made of methane and, and hydrocarbons. And so well, maybe for them, a fuel resource would be an oxidizer instead right. of uh, a combustion. That's right. Except yeah. that remember, like carbons. we still don't know whether there's life that's any other form other than our carbon-based stuff. So that's wild that's speculation. That's it fun is wild speculation. No, but Cam- wild Cam- speculation is always fun. <laughs> <laughs> Cameron, you have brought up an excellent point. Thank you so much for your question. And thank you for your patronage on Patreon of this great show. Uh, well, wait, I shouldn't say it's great because I'm just on the show. Other people can <laughs> I say think it's great, great but you know, oh, I'm also on. <laughs> <laughs> We're just having fun here. Thank you. Uh, so Isabel, do you feel like the work you do in astronomy is more like tedious, coding stuff or more like a video game 
where you're really playing with computers like it's a toy. I think it's not fair to call coding tedious. I think coding is a really creative art. Um, okay. I don't personally play video games, so mm. I can't really like jump into that comparison. But mm. I think, yeah, coding, like it has a bad rep for being boring because often you have to do a lot of debugging, which can be really boring. <laughs> yeah. But like the actual process of building an algorithm and putting mm. together code from scratch is a creative process. Wow. Um, it's yeah. not, you know, I'm not like, I'm not just doing it by rote. I'm actually like often to to create an algorithm, people are drawing diagrams. Right. Um, to like work out what happens. It's, you know, it's like tangible. That's great. So it's yeah. really creative. You, you really feel like it's almost artistic in a sense, or, or at least if you imagine, say, someone trying to design a new airplane or trying to design a new uh, car or something like that. Yes, there's there's technical aspects, but there's also artistic and creative aspects, even to code then. Yeah, I think to to make the kind of decisions that science requires, I don't know if there's, I like, I don't, the more I do, the less I believe that there's like some kind of boundary between technical skill and creative skill, because it's mm. all just like thinking in new ways. Cool. Wow. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you are, do consider yourself a data scientist of the stars, but at yes, the same time, sure. you're also a, a, an artist of the stars, a creator. Yeah, why not? <laughs> who appreciates the music of the spheres, so to speak. Maybe an artist. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I am a, a big fan, top streamer on Spotify. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I just think that, like, um, you know, Data science. A lot of people are like, oh, you're just crunching numbers. That's so boring. No, it's not. <laughs> like, <laughs> nah. it numbers are great. As the math person, numbers are great. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, that's wonderful. Isabel, uh, the time has flown by. We've had so much to talk about, but we still have so much more to talk about. Uh, thank you for being with us on this episode. Yeah. I, I hope pleasure. we can talk to you again sometime. Thank you so much. If the, we want to find you, is there any easy way that our audience members can find you on social media or uh, internet or anything like that? Yeah, I'm not on social media, um, but I have a website where you can like find like read about the work I do and contact me. Okay. And that is just ilc.fyi. Oh, how convenient. It's a nice little short, short URL there. ilc.fyi. Yeah, nice Terrific. <laughs> we will absolutely go find you there. And I want to Great. thank you again so much, Isabel. Dr. Isabel Coleman at the American Museum of Natural History, thank you for joining us today. We hope to talk to you again very, very soon. Thanks for having me. Yes. Alan, as always, our co-host, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for doing what you did today. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for you doing what you did. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. And to everybody out there in the audience, thank you for being part of our episode today. If you liked what you've seen and heard today, please feel free to support us on Patreon. And as always, thank you for being a part of the Lunaverse.